Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to more than 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information, call 1-888-842-6328, or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply. This episode is brought to you by Miller Lite. Look, here at The Ringer, we have our disagreements, but there shouldn't be any debate about this. Miller Lite is the great tasting light beer. With only 96 calories and 3.2 grams of carbs, that's fewer calories and half the carbs of Bud Light, so there's really nothing more to talk about. If you have a real argument, let me hear it. Until then, stick with Miller Lite. Miller Lite, hold true. Hey, the ice of Boston is muddy, and this is The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. As always, we are part of The Ringer Podcast Network, which is itself a part of TheRinger.com. Now, since last we talked, uh, we've got plenty of new content up on the site. I'll just run down some of the highlights. We've got our NFL coverage in full swing uh, with recaps of the weekend's action. You can also check out Kevin Clark's story on Liberty City, the NFL pipeline uh, down there in South Florida, as well as new NFL show podcast episodes every day. In addition to the NFL, we've got NBA coverage. We're gearing up for the start of the NBA season. Kevin O'Connor wrote about whether or not Kevin Durant will ever peak as the best player in the league. It's all Kevin's on the uh, the rare NBA coverage and Danny Chow, Justin Verrier, and Chris Ryan teamed up to write about the 34 people and things that will define the 2018-19 season. Uh, in the world of baseball, Ben Lindbergh wrote a well-received story about Shohei Otani uh, looking back on his rookie season. So I would encourage you to check out that as well. But we got a lot to talk about. So let's not waste any more time. I know y'all are here just to listen to Zach Cram and here he is. The book of Ecclesiastes says that life is meaningless at chasing after the wind. And at this point in the season, so is much of baseball. And here to discuss that phenomenon is my good friend and uh, presumptive ringer uh, fantasy baseball bronze medalist, Zach Cram. Zach. Hello. I hope uh, this conversation isn't meaningless. Um, yeah, you beat me in fantasy last week, which I was know. tragic. Uh, I My favorite thing about this and our listeners will indulge us because this doesn't happen very often. There are two things I love about this. One, that uh, that your Slack messages became more frequent and more desperate as as the week went on, as you realized what was happening to you. And two, that like you don't get angry about anything. And I think you were like, there was some some genuine frustration coming through, and I enjoyed that immensely. Two is that in an, what I assume is an attempt to reverse jinx this, you called this months and months ago, and so now my victory is dampened by this just being another thing you were right about. Well, I think that was very clever <laughs> on your part. Well, I, I do what I can. I said this uh, to you over the weekend, but the the one that broke me was when I was beating you by a bunch in the stolen bases category. And then Juan Soto, who had two stolen bases all season, had three in a game. And when that happened, I realized it it just, just wasn't not. in the cards. Well, I mean, but that's one of the, the things that we're going to talk about today. So there was a, every so often there's a, a and I'm doing asshole quotes here, bad tweet that, that floats around baseball Twitter. Uh, this one suggested that, and I won't name the writer because it's, doesn't matter and I don't want anybody to pile on this guy but uh he suggested that all scheduled games between two uh 
two mathematically eliminated teams ought to be uh, canceled and season ticket holders be granted refunds rather than the teams actually bothering to show up and presumably the journalists actually bothering to cover these games. And I'm sympathetic to to this point of view because it sucks to to watch and cover uh, meaningless baseball and to have to pay attention enough to actually write a story or to find interesting storylines but there are you know our contention and that's what we're going to talk about today is that there are interesting storylines to be had in meaningless baseball as most baseball at this point in the in the season is yeah and i think the first thing i would say about that is if you're watching baseball for the sole purpose of your team winning a championship, then you're going to be mighty disappointed most of the time. Only one out of 30 teams wins each year. So if it's championship or bust for you, then you have a, what, 97% chance of ending any given season unhappy. And from a front office perspective, perhaps it makes sense to focus on really putting together the best roster you can to try and compete for a championship. That's what has sparked a lot of the discussion in baseball and other sports over recent years about the process and tanking and rebuilding and such. But from a fan perspective, I think there's a lot to be gleaned from the day-to-day excitement and joy of following the sport. Baseball is first and foremost a team game made up of individual performances that all come together. Baseball, more than any other sport, is like that. And from that perspective alone, I think it's easy to focus on one or two players, maybe even more from your specific team and just grasp onto those performances. In Kansas City, the young Adalberto Mondesi has been a real joy to watch over the last few months. As he's figuring it out, I think he's still only 23 years old. Uh, The Mets, a team we talk about a lot, have seen Jeff McNeil come up and really produce. Uh, Jacob deGrom's having his wonderful season. Zach Wheeler has quietly been one of the best pitchers in the National League. It's Even if the games themselves don't matter toward contention, it's still fun to watch your quote-unquote guys and to gain hope for next year if those performances last. And it's, I think there's something too from a fan perspective being in it, I would say not even for uh, an actual championship, but the feeling that you're, that you're, uh, that a championship is possible or at least a deep playoff run is possible. And I say that as, as, you know, someone who, uh, as a Sixers fan who supported the process because I got tired of the team being the eight seed every year. And it was just, you know, if it's just boring, meaningless, you know, uh, basketball in that case, baseball in this case, over and over and over again, you don't really feel like the team's moving in one direction or another. That can be really frustrating. But on an individual game to game basis, you know, you see meaningless games turn out nine, eight and 13 innings and you're back and forth. And once you're wrapped up in the the individual back and forth of of that game it's not it's somewhat less dramatic than uh, a game that's with pennant implications but you know each game has its own stakes and you know when you get that walk-off single or the the closer closes it out you see the way the players react you know they value the importance of, of every single game and i think that there's or something to once you're you're invested in in an individual game, you can find a good game anywhere. But you know, there's that's not precisely what we're talking about here, though. I think in addition to that, uh, there's you know the saying, "Don't let uh, great be the enemy of good." I think and, and good be the enemy of great. Yes, and, and don't let efficiency be the enemy of fun. Yeah, uh, I and, like that. And I am not someone who thinks that like three true outcomes are ruining baseball. I know we have argued about that in the past, but I do Mm -hmm. think that there are 
elements of late season baseball or full season baseball that people kind of poo poo as unimportant uh, that are still a joy. Uh, I was thinking about this last night when Christian Yelich hit his second cycle just of the month. He was, I believe, the third player since the American and National Leagues combined to hit two cycles in the same season. And I think it's become kind of not cool to like cycles because people say, oh, well, it's not as important for your team as, say, hitting three home runs or hitting two home runs and getting two walks. But from the time I was a kid, I loved cycles. I remember like playing a, a game of backyard baseball and hitting a cycle in the championship game. And I was more excited about that than actually winning the game because I had won games before I hadn't hit for the cycle in that game. So it's still really fun to see someone like Yelich be able to accomplish this feat and see a guy who just needs a triple for the cycle and he hits it into the gap and the announcer's voice starts to rise. Can he do it? Can he round second and make it to third? And I think we should appreciate these things for what they are and not focus so intently on what it means in the broader sense of of a win-loss record. And I think focusing on the efficiency over... I think calling it trivia sort of cheapens the um, the accomplishment of, of hitting for the cycle or the no hitter is another thing that uh, that's sort of fallen out of favor over the over the past few years. But, you know, it's um or something like like Edwin Diaz is still he's probably not going to break the all time save re- saves record, but he's got a shot at it like he's still in the mix. It's it's possible that he could do it. Um, it these things. I, I think are still significant in the terms of of helping the team win in a larger sense. You know, Yel- one of Yelich's cycles came in a six for six game that was back and forth the whole the whole way, and he threw out a runner at the plate in that game. And it's gonna be like if Yelich makes a serious run at the MVP, he that game is gonna be a big part of. It's gonna be a good snapshot into what made him so great this year. And you think of something like that, even no hitters, even combined no hitters, you're chasing them, chasing combined no hitters is uh is something that yes, it's not the absolute pinnacle of the sport, but it's still a great achievement that illustrates that often illustrates something larger about the player or the team that pulls it off. And I also think that the maybe more uh, widespread issue that this thinking generates is that it leads teams to believe that if we're not going to win the championship this year, maybe calling up a top prospect would be considered a waste of his service time. The Orioles played the White Sox over the weekend and are currently playing the Blue Jays. None of those teams are in contention for a playoff spot, but imagine how much more exciting those games would have been if Eloy Jimenez and Vlad Guerrero Jr. were up and actually hitting. And I think the notion that these games don't matter, so let's not burn these players' service times is an issue for fan appreciation. But also, like, Major league playing time is in games that matter, but also don't matter is kind of a luxury. Like spring training is a little too unimportant. And then if you wait until you're actually a contender, then if those guys take take their lumps in their initial exposure to the major leagues, then that's a real problem. But using September as kind of a, a testing ground, it's not something you get in this sport all too often. And I think teams and fans should take greater advantage. Or how many times have we seen a, a hot prospect call up, get called up, and get 
you know, five or six weeks worth of playing time and struggle at the beginning and then sort of figure out what he needs to to fix his game to become competitive and come back and be the player that everybody expected him to be the next season. And I, that might be the most frustrating thing to me because part of I actually like expanded rosters because you get to see more players. I do, and, too. You know, you get to and I'm not just talking about guys like, you know, we want to see Vlad Guerrero Jr., Eloy Jimenez or Peter Alonso, you know. I want to see Jeff McNeil. Like I want to have the player who given a chance really grasp, you know, takes it and runs with it, uh, who might not have if, if uh, roster spots were harder to come by. And, you know, I, I think we're to a certain extent being robbed of that because the financial element of team building is, uh, is swamping the, the player development element of team building. Exactly. It, and that's exactly what you said about efficiency being the the enemy of uh, what was the way you put it? Efficiency being the enemy of what? Of fun. Of fun. Yes. And and one last thing I'll point out about this month is like I know the the tweet in question was about games between two teams that don't matter, but I think the broader sentiment of like why should I watch my team if it's bad? Like playing spoilers, a ton of fun. I still remember how much the Orioles celebrated when they beat the Red Sox in oh, game yeah. 162. And like that is like, especially if it's against a rival, almost as good as making the playoffs yourself. And that could still happen over the last few weeks, especially in the the National League where a lot of these teams are fighting against each other. Like how much fun would the Giants have if they put a wrench in the Dodgers postseason plans? But I the one team I'm looking at, especially over these last couple weeks, even though they're not going to make the playoffs, is the Angels. Uh, They play the Athletics six more times, and the Athletics are chasing the Yankees for the first wildcard spot to host a playoff game. So the Angels have something to play for. And also, I was just looking at the leaderboard in WRC+, which is the all-encompassing hitting statistic, in September. And the two players with the best WRC+, this month, are number two, Mike Trout, and number one, Shohei Otani. So f- for no other reason, watch those two players, uh, even if your team is out, and you'll have a fun September of baseball watching. Now, let me say, I want to bring up two other things. Uh, one is that baseball is, I think, a lot better than... Uh, baseball is great for its own sake in the really tense moments, but what makes baseball such a cultural institution? It's such a great quotidian passive sport that it's something that you have on the radio while you're doing yard work, or it's not, you know, you go to a game to hang out and and sit in the sun and and chat with your friends and and kill three hours, or it's something that's on in the corner of the bar six nights a week, you know, that you can just rely on being there to watch. And that effect of, of baseball doesn't really change. Like baseball as great, it's more than background noise, but it just a reason to come together, a reason to to set up a chair on the lawn with the radio next to you or, or something like that is not like that doesn't change based on whether a team, a team is in first place or in fifth place. And the other thing is I might have I talk about cycling a lot, but one reason that I really like cycling, watching cycling, particularly the Grand Tours, is that it's not just one race. Like you, you think of the tour de France, you think of the yellow Jersey, the overall leader. And yes, that's the one thing that everybody wants the most, but there are other categories, you know, there are categories for best climber for best sprinter. And each of those guys gets a Jersey and the, the winners of each of the 21 stages is celebrated. And like that can be a career making achievement. So you get 200 athletes in a race and they might be chasing 40 or 50 different goals. And you get to this point in the season and 
something similar happens in baseball where you get some teams that are going for a spot in the playoffs or going for home field advantage. And that's the equivalent of a yellow Jersey, but you get other teams that are trying to figure out who their roster is going to be for next year. And there are other teams that are just trying things like, you know, let's give this guy a start. You know, the Mets are, let's roll out David Wright for the last time. And you occasionally you'll see, you know, let's have a guy play all nine positions in one game, or, you know, let's see what this, uh, what this 20 year old prospect or this 27 year old career minor leaguer has and maybe he'll fit in on the team next year so winning the pennant isn't necessarily the goal for all 30 teams but every single one of them is trying to do you hope at least is trying to do something more constructive than play out the string and just sort of seeing those teams pull different ways on that uh on that string is is different it's interesting to to watch and you don't really get that at any other point other than september that's a great point i didn't uh, expect to talk about multiple meanings of the word cycling today. But I think that's a great point. And going forward, like I'm sure that in the offseason, and when we're looking at fantasy lineups for next year, preseason projections, we will come back to some of these games and say, hey, maybe this team is a sleeper for next season because of how these under-discussed players performed in September. That's why I was high on the athletics this season because I was impressed with how players like Matt Olson and Matt Chapman performed on the stretch last year, even though those games didn't matter. And look how what happened. How much has the Mets outlook changed exactly. over the past six weeks? So we will return to these games, and it helps inform, inform future predictions, and that's just as important. I guess, I don't know, anything else that you love about September baseball? I mean, with all this said, I kind of just want the playoffs to start already. But I, yeah, I there, want there is something to, to this being a little bit of a slog if your team's out. But there, you know, there are reasons to uh, to tune in. But, you know, if, if you want to just spend the next couple weeks, uh, you know, putting in quality time with your family before spending October in front of the TV, you know, you're, that's certainly an equally legitimate way to look at it. Yeah, I, I kind of wish that teams like Arizona and Philadelphia hadn't slumped so much this month so that we'd still have like a six-way free-for-all in the National League, but it'll still be fun down the stretch. And who knows, my prediction that Tampa Bay might still make a run is technically alive, so I'm still watching them. How close are you? I was just Uh, They're still like six games back or something. It's not all that close. Well, you're going to be half right because they already caught the Mariners. All right. All right. Well, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Maybe we'll have, you know, we won't have to, to go looking quite so hard for things to talk about next time. Have a good one. All right. Thanks to Zach. We'll be back with Bobby Wagner right after these messages. Playing sports is great. So is watching your favorite team win a game. But we can all agree on one thing. Sleeping is the best. Mattress Firm wants you to sleep better on a new mattress at an unbelievably low price. That's why they're our team captain when it comes to helping you sleep better. Mattress Firm selection is unheard of, and the savings they offer are out of this world. No one else can compete. If it were a football game, you'd have changed the channel by now. With more than 3,000 stores nationwide, every shopping experience is a home game. They're in your neighborhood, but if you're glued to the sofa, they've also made online shopping shopping simple. They offer the same or next day delivery as well as a 120 night low price guarantee so you know you're getting the best price. Nobody can offer you more bed for fewer dollars. Mattress Firm has a game plan for everybody and every budget. Head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and enter the code podcast10 for 10% off because who doesn't deserve a nap?
All right, so my next guest is not really a guest at all. This is his first time on this side of the the microphone for the Ringer MLB show. It's my producer, Bobby Wagner. Bobby. How you doing, Mike? I Well, you know how I'm doing. You just listen to me talk to Zach <laughs> for 20 minutes. The pleasantries are important, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, this is all... This isn't exactly breaking the fourth wall, but it does feel like we're violating some sort of recording uh, convention. <laughs> okay, so what we did, we, we put out a call last week to uh, open up ye old mailbag. Uh, so this is a I used to this used to be like a really big thing in in sports writing. You know, every sports writer used to write four thousand words about. You know, Bill Simmons obviously was a one of the uh, primary adopters of this format that, you know, I adopted it at one time or another and, uh, it's useful. So, you know, it's time to, to hear from our listeners. Uh, and, uh, so I invited, uh, our listeners to write in via email or Twitter with questions they want to see answered. And, uh, I, the results have been encouraging, I think. So let's, uh, let's get started. All right. Jameson asks with David Wright, all but retiring and Joe Maurer considering retirement, are these guys hall of famers? He says, in my opinion, I believe they are. The only reason they are not is because of some injury plague seasons. Uh, he says he's a Twins fan, so yeah, tough stuff for him recently. But he says uh, he's a, he says he's a Twins fan, but he also says Maurer is probably a top ten catcher all time, which makes me doubt that he's a Twins fan. I thought all Twins fans hated Joe Maurer and <laughs> thought he was stealing the Polad family's money. That's that Twitter representation. It's refreshing to see. Uh, see a Twins fan actually appreciate one of the best players in franchise history. So good for you, Jameson. What do you got? Well, I think for David Wright, I mean, I'm a Mets fan as well. Um, I think for David Wright, it's going to be a tough look. He just hasn't really amassed. Baseball reference has its Jaws ratings and the average Jaws for third base is 55.7. David Wright comes in at 45.3. It's just a total look at his career that... um, Jay Jaffe, former uh, podcast guest, Jay Jaffe. It's a it's a a balance essentially between overall career war and peak war. So balancing you know the Hall of Fame peak with the Hall of Fame longevity. Right. So he comes in close on the the seven year peak war that they factor into that. He's just three wars shy. He comes in at forty point two, um, and the average was forty three. But that's a tough position. I mean, do you do you think that he should get vaulted in there because of what he meant? Uh, at that cornerstone position, how much how much do injuries factor in for you when talking about Hall of Fame? I don't actually give players a lot of rope for injuries because you know staying healthy is sort of the once you get into you know how did injuries affect this uh, this player's Hall of Fame case? Then it you know it's sort of a slippery slope. You know how far do you go back to Mark Pryor or Tony Canigliaro or something? You know so. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't give right that much rope. And, and as far as what he meant to the team, like there's sort of, you know, the Mets ought to retire his number is it's why I think a lot of teams have a policy. You know, a lot of teams have a policy of we don't retire your number unless you make the Hall of Fame, which I don't like as a rule because it, it to me, retiring the number is not just about excellence. It's about meaning. You know, I'm a Phillies fan and I don't think Jimmy Rollins is within 10 miles of the Hall of Fame, but I absolutely think that. Uh, they ought to retire his number. Um, you know, Wright's career, it's one of those that up until age 30, it was absolutely a Hall of Fame peak. And he's, you know, he's even to this day, maybe two or three good years from really getting there in terms of longevity, but he just doesn't have the overall numbers, you know, and it's not just, it, it's, it's not just like counting stats, but just playing time. You know, his career is uh, pretty much over by, by age 31 and you don't see, position players, you know, even ones who were as good as young, as good as Wright was, as young as Wright was, 
Um, you don't see position players really overcome that uh, that lack of playing time. So I think he's a little bit short. And I think that's a shame because he never won an MVP. You know, I think that you could have made a case for him in 2007 when Rollins won and uh, Matt Holiday was in the was in the discussion as well. That's I think, salt in the yeah, wound right there for Mets fans. Rollins I mean, won a, and 2007. Yeah. I mean, sorry, I'm not, but <laughs> um, I think if Wright wins the MVP in 2007 and there's a, a decent possibility that the Mets don't do an all-time choke job that he does, you know, maybe we, we remember him differently, but I, I worry that he's got one of those careers that might just sort of get forgotten because he was just, you know, he never won the MVP. The Mets came so close to winning a World Series, but didn't, you know, he came so close to his Hall of Fame benchmarks, but didn't, but he was, you know, you think about players that you can't tell the story of, of baseball in the 2000s without David Wright. He was one of the biggest stars in the game. And I just hope that I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, you know, I, he's, but he's one of those players that makes me wish that there was a literal Hall of really good. Yeah. Well, if the Mets did retire his number, I think it would do a lot to at least keep his career alive. He's always been a company man. He's always said the right thing. He's done the right thing, at least organizationally, with this injury that he's had over the last two plus mm-hmm. years. And the Mets have only retired four numbers and the word Shea. Um, Gil Hodges, Mike Piazza, Casey Stengel, and Tom Seaver, they haven't even retired guys like um, like Strawberry and Gooden. So if they did retire him, I think it would go a long way in the city of New York. How about Joe Maurer, though? So I was... I was for a long time on the Joe Mowers, a, a Hall of Famer um, bandwagon. And I think a lot of that was just projecting that he would continue to be at least a, an okay uh, big leader. Well, you know, he was a three win player last year. I think he's, he's closer, you know, and in terms of peak, you know, I don't know, you know, you look at war, um, his peak, peak season wasn't as good at rights, but you have to, because of the difference in playing time between, catchers and other position players, even third baseman, you have to give catchers a little bit more uh, rope. So like for me, the benchmark for it, for the Hall of Fame, for when we start talking about it, it's about 60 wins for starting pitchers and position players, but it's a little lower for catchers, probably around 50 wins. And Maurer, despite playing catcher, despite having uh, injury problems of his own um, and moving off, you know, moving off the position, uh, has still had more than a thousand career played appearances more than right. Uh, he's still got a higher career award. He's got the MVP award. He's got three batting titles as a catcher. You know, he was the best player at his position for, for three or four or five years. And so the drop off in his mid thirties has been greater than I expected it would be. And that makes it closer than I think it was. But if I had a vote, I would put him in the hall of fame just because his peak was that good. Where do you come down on the, he hasn't caught his whole career. Kind of nobody debate. catches their entire career. Well, nobody catches their entire career, but he hasn't caught since 2013. Well, it's sort of like you know, Ernie Banks is in there as a shortstop. He wasn't a a shortstop for the second half of his career. You know, yeah. everybody moves around. Everybody moves down the defensive spectrum as they get older. Um, you know, Cal Ripken wasn't a shortstop for his entire career. It's just a reality of of aging in your mid 30s, particularly as a guy as big as Maurer is. Yeah. Um, a lot of stress on those knees. Yeah, so like a lot of catchers, you know, Carlton Fisk and Pudge Rodriguez are the exception. Um, you know, Mike Piazza DH'd a lot uh, towards the the end of his career. So, you know, I don't hold it against him uh, that much. You know, his Hall of Fame case would probably be better uh, if he had caught past his age 30 season. But also the reason he, he uh, moved off the position was, was because of concussions. And in this day and age, you know, it feels sort of wrong to 
Naka guy. To unnecessary, you know, to to go and actually, you know, he's been punished enough because of the positional adjustment knocks down his offensive production. Uh, you know, he even to this day, he'd be a, a good offensive catcher hitting the way he is, but he's sort of an, a substandard offensive first baseman. Um, but it, that feels like, you know, punishment is not the right word, but adjustment enough. You know, we're already evaluating him for, for the last third of his career as a first baseman in DH. And, you know, I don't feel like you need to knock him that far beyond that. And besides, most of his value, this is just hang around value. Um, you know, most of his uh, his value came while he was a catcher and he banked it. I think he banked enough of it by age 30 and then stuck around long enough to to make a pretty good case. And I, re- you know, I recognize that it's it's controversial. I'm not saying it's it's an open and shut case, but, you know, I've always liked Maurer. I'm a big hall guy. He gets in for me. All right. Let's uh, let's move on to the NL East, the 2018 NL East. Tim asks, how likely is it the Braves make their way out of the National League and give some superior team from the American League a run for their money in the World Series. Bauman, what do you think? So I wrote, and we're going to talk about the a similar concept to this uh, later on, but I wrote about how the Dodgers at one point were the National League uh, pennant favorite and not in a position to make the playoffs. I think the Braves have as good a chance as anybody of making it out of the playoffs because they're the only National League team that I am almost certain, I'm pretty much certain they're going to win their division. Um, it would take a 2000 Met, a 2007 Mets like collapse at this point in the season for them to um, for them to not win their division. And so that gives them a leg up even over a team like the Cubs, who are uh, all but a lock to, to make the playoffs. But there's still a decent chance they end up in the wildcard game if the Brewers catch them. So just because of that, I would say the Braves and because once you get into the playoffs, it's sort of it's just so unpredictable. You know, I think the the Braves have a pretty good shot or have as good a shot as anybody of, of making the uh, the World Series. As far as what happens when they get into the playoffs, I I think once you get up to a certain standard of of skill, you know, of, of total skill players, I don't know that it matters a whole lot. You know, it just matters who's hot at, at one time or another. And, you know, you look at, yeah, you know, they've they've got an enough uh quality relief pitchers to get them through you know you look at a guy like mike fulton who is probably not gonna get anything more than a fifth place cy young vote but you look at the the other nl cy young contenders you know noel is not going to be in the playoffs Degrom's not going to be in the playoffs and scherzer's not going to be in the playoffs there's a decent chance that fulton could be one of the best pitchers in the national league uh side of the bracket and beyond that they've got enough competent starting pitchers that i think that they've got that they they have the ability to hang so i think just because they're they're positioning in the standings right now they've got a a pretty good shot at making the world series which sounds crazy you know considering what we thought about them what we thought about the nationals early in, in the season but getting there is is half the battle and and beyond that you just sort of have to see i dug up a couple of things about their offense actually this year so they've had the biggest positive run differential increase. I think the Marlins are giving them a run for for negative run differential uh, change from last season. But um, last year they were minus 89 runs uh, at the end of the season. And this year so far they're uh, 100 up. Um, they're seventh in the league in scoring despite having just a 99 WRC plus. So factoring in all the different things that go into to hitting into offense, they've probably a little outperformed their expectations. Do you think that tightens up at all when they get into the playoffs like facing better pitchers facing more bullpen live arms um do you think they will be able to score enough runs to support guys like julio teheran who are behind 
Mike Fulton Evans. I mean, Tehran's been really good in the last couple of months, but what do you think about their offense scoring enough runs to get them through a long October? I mean, that's that's really the question is is how the regular season numbers translate once you get into to higher competition. And, you know, we saw a team like the Diamondbacks last year who looked great all year, putting up numbers right up there with anybody in baseball. And then they just cratered when they had to face the Dodgers three times in a row. Yeah. Um, and something similar could happen to Atlanta, but you look at, you know, their WRC plus is, you know, if they're a league average hitting team, they're an above average base running team. You just, I mean, the numbers bear that out. They're fourth in, in Fangraph's base running runs as mm-hmm. a team in the national league. But you look at, you know, you'd expect a team with Acuna and Inciarte and Swanson and Albies and Johan Camargo to to score a lot of runs just based on uh, what they do on the bases. And, you know, I think we'll see whether that athleticism plays up or whether that turns into you know, a dangerous level of of uh, inexperience. It's, it's one of those things that there's really no way to know. Um, but, I, you know, I think you can make a case that they are the kind of team just because of how athletic they are. They can outperform. They can uh, you know, if they make good decisions on the bases, they can outperform their hitting and score more runs than that would predict. Let's move on. So Twitter user at Boffles asks, Dodgers currently lead NL in run differential and fan graphs were while being out of postseason position. I know you just talked about this and uh, you wrote about it a couple of weeks ago. How remarkable will it be if they end the season this way? I'm going to let you, I'm going to leave you some runway for this one since this is your area of expertise right now. So, when I wrote about the Dodgers, uh, and obviously I think when when this question was asked, the Dodgers were still at a playoff position because as we answer it now, they're they're in first place by half a game. So, uh, but we put out the call last week. So um, the answer to this question is not as remarkable as I thought it would be. You can find individual answers where this gets you get close to a situ- situation like the one the Dodgers were in a week or two ago. Um, the 2016 Astros missed the playoffs despite being second in in the American League in run differential. The 2014 Oakland A's famously led Major League Baseball in run differential and then went on that incredible two-month slide, went all the way back from best record in baseball to going on the road for the wild card game where they lost in one of the best baseball games I've ever seen. But the last time... Uh, a team led the league in led a league in run differential and didn't make the playoffs was 2005 when the Cleveland Indians uh, had the best run differential in the American League, but uh, miss a wild card by two games. Uh, and this was a result of the 99 win White Sox outperforming their run differential by eight games while the uh, the Indians underperformed it by three games. And even then, um, I mean, first of all, it was somewhat surprising that this happened in the 21st century, uh, but this wouldn't have happened uh, if there had been two wild card spots. They finished behind the Red Sox in the wild card, but they would have gotten the second wild card spot. They had the fifth best record in the American League, but also this is far enough in the past that the White Sox made the playoffs. Um, so that's you know it, some it would be somewhat remarkable, but perhaps not as remarkable as I thought. And you you know you look at. It seems like it happens once every three or four years that a team, the Yankees, or the Red Sox, or the Rays, some AL East team leads the American League in run differential but loses the division uh, by a game or two and ends up in the wild card game. Although that's not as a situation as extreme as the one we predicted for the or not predicted, but uh, but witnessed with the Dodgers last week. I think that's in large part probably because the rest of the AL East has been a lot worse than the rest of the NL West. I think I've been surprised by teams like the Rockies and Diamondbacks holding their own in a division that's stacked with the Dodgers at the top that can I think we've seen in other places that's sort of a a reason for teams to say 
well, maybe we won't compete while the Dodgers have all of this young talent. But in the NL West, it's sort of like they're never going to not have this young talent. You know, they they yeah. seem set up for the uh, the long haul. So, and the Giants gave it one more shot, and the Padres have been. I mean, the Padres are probably going to lose close to a hundred games, but they've got dangerous young talent. So that's you know that's a tough division, top to bottom. Speaking of giving it one more shot, um, the final question that we're going to get to from Eric on Twitter. It was an exceedingly fun first half of the season, but the second half proved the predicted glaring holes in the team true for the Mariners. Should they really just run it back next year, or should they sell the three good pieces they have to start a rebuild? And he posits that the three good pieces are Hanninger, Diaz, and James Paxson. This is a tough one, and I would say, no, don't blow it up, because if you blow it up, like... I don't know that selling off Segura and D Gordon and and Hanniger and Edwin Diaz like I don't know that that gets you the core of the next good Mariners team. And right now the Mariners farm system is bad. So right now like this team is aging and who knows how long Nelson Cruz will um will keep hitting like this. Who knows how long Robinson Cano will still be good. Kyle Seeger's 30, you know, he's dealt with uh, with injuries this year that sort of dogged him playing through uh, his injuries. But, you know, he might be nearing the end. Even guys that, that you're still waiting to hit your stride, like Mike Zanino's in his age 27 season. You know, Paxton is, uh, is in his age 29 season. But at the same time, like, I don't see, this is different from the Mets. Like, if the Mets blew it up right now, they could be a contender again in a year or two. Or what, you know, you think about when the White Sox blew it up, they got huge packages back for sale, Quintana and Adam Eaton. And I just don't know that that's the case for the Mariners. So I think as as frustrating and as, you know, Jerry Depoto's only way to to make the team competitive maybe in the next five years is just to keep trying to tinker around the edges and keep the team over 500, which he's done as often as not. You know, he hasn't made the playoffs yet, but I don't know that I see a better option the way the team's constructed right now. I think the real problem is they haven't drafted that well. You know, I like their first rounder this year, Logan Gilbert. Um, I think it, they've had some bad luck with Kyle Lewis getting hurt, you know, but, you know, other picks of theirs, I didn't really like the Evan White pick. It, they just, they need to draft and develop better, and they haven't really done that dating back two or three general managers. We, we saw it a lot this past offseason with the Marlins, is that if you're going to blow it up, you better get something back. Yeah, because that's your one shot. Like, that's not that's not a guaranteed... I mean, it, that's a concern troll's way of putting it. It's not that, that it's not guaranteed, but, like, you've got to get a lot back if you're going to sell off players who are good right now. And, exactly. And it helps if you have the ability to supple, supplement that young core that you're building with young prospects you already have from within and you know maybe maybe this doesn't work maybe just rolling it back year after year never works and they get to a position where the rangers and the blue jays are now where they just have a core that's aging out of of competence and they don't get anything for them and they wind up being bad for five to seven years anyway but i just i don't see another path back I think this is a I think it's a pretty good team now, and I think it's easier to to take this maybe true talent eighty three win team to ninety wins than it is to go all the way back around. Yeah, I think it makes a little more sense for this is one of the only teams that it might make sense to sort of walk into a absolute tank, whereas another, for other teams it might make a little more sense to sell off pieces and run into one. But like I said, if you don't get the pieces back, then you're forced watching Christian Yelich probably win the NL MVP on a different team. Yeah. 
but even at the same time, I don't know who the who the guy they trade off, you know, who comes back to bite them is, you know, in who is who the equivalent of Yelich is, which is part of the problem. But yeah, well, that's all we got this week. All right. Well, thanks, Bobby. I'll talk to you in a matter of seconds. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure the listeners will hear, hear from you again. All right. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Ben Lindbergh. You know the saying, time is money? It's true, especially when you run your own business. But running a successful business involves taxes, contracts, and a whole lot of fine print, things that eat up too much of your time. Well, it's time to turn to LegalZoom. Over the past 17 years, more than a million Americans have used LegalZoom to help launch their businesses, but that's only the beginning. LegalZoom also has a network of independent attorneys and tax professionals who can provide you with the advice you need to get through the daily grind of running your business. And the best part is you don't have to worry about driving to anyone's office or being billed by the hour since LegalZoom isn't a law firm. You can count on LegalZoom to provide the business resources you need and service that fits into your schedule. Invest your time and money into growing your business and let LegalZoom help with the legal stuff. Go to LegalZoom.com now and use code MLB at checkout for special savings. That's promo code MLB at LegalZoom.com. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. All right, so it is my distinct pleasure to reunite with my dear friend, Ben Lindbergh, who is joining me to with news. You've got exciting and unexpected news from the world of interleague play. That's right. I don't know how many of the listeners were watching the Pirates-Royals game on Monday night. I can assure you I was not watching <laughs> was not the Pirates-Royals game. <laughs> I was not either, and I can understand why no one would have been. But history was made when the Pirates defeated the Royals and clinched a winning record for the National League in interleague play against the American League this year. For the first time in 15 years, 2003 was the last time that the NL actually won in interleague play. That was a long time ago. That was the year Moneyball came out. That was a time when people were still doing 1918 chants at Red Sox games. A lot has changed since then. Yeah. Have we changed as, you know, societally for the better or for the worse since 2003? Mm. I think this is what you really want to talk about, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that the NL finally getting back on top has coincided with an improvement in society at large, but it is something to celebrate, I guess, if you're an NL fan. I don't know. If, are people fans of leagues anymore? This Probably is something. Not. So before we get into to like actually what we want to talk about. You bring up an interesting point because I feel like that used to be the case because you and I are sort of the last generation that remembers life before interleague play. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was, and not only life before interleague play, but life before, before a time when you could see every baseball game if you wanted to right you know you just essentially got your local team or you got your local team plus either the braves or the cubs right Mm -hmm. and so like i saw the there was a while when when we got the occasional yankees game uh on tv but it was most you know most of what i saw on tv was phillies and braves and that really you know, up until interleague play and certainly before ESPN, you know, before the proliferation of ESPN and MLB.tv, it really did warp your perspective as a fan. You know, these mm-hmm. leagues were distinct entities. I, you know, I think about, I might have talked about this before, but there are times when I talk to uh, Meg Rowley, who's who grew up a Seattle Mariners fan. And, you know, she and I had similar fan upbringings, but 
her being a fan of a West Coast American League team and my being a fan of a National League East Coast team, like there's almost no overlap in yeah. the baseball that we saw up until like 2002, 2003. Yeah, and it was like I, a separate species. You part of me misses those that, players. to be totally <laughs> honest. Like, yeah, I mean, it made the All-Star game mean something. It made the World Series mean something other than just to the fans of the respective teams. I mean, it was kind of cool to have league rivalries, I think. And at this point, there's no distinction between between the leagues other than the DH, which is maybe one reason why people get so upset about the DH or not having the DH. It's kind of the only thing that actually separates them anymore. So if we get to a point where expansion comes along and we talk about realignment, I wonder whether there's even enough kind of institutional loyalty to the idea of AL and NL to preserve that anymore or whether it will just go to a straight up geographic mix. You remember when the leagues used to have their own offices? Uh, yeah. You know, that, I remember on the eve of, of interleague play and it was 96 or 97, whatever, whichever year they started, I was watching a, a Fox game and, and on a... Um, part of their their pregame package they did they had nolan ryan and willie mays and uh someone went up to them and asked them to sign asked them each to sign a baseball and nolan ryan said wait this is a national league ball and willie willie mays said wait this is an american league ball i'm not signing this and they swapped him and like that was 20 years ago that's yeah. it just feels the baseball landscape is so ironed out is so new compared to to you know, you think of the NBA was always sort of a single entity thing or the NHL Mm -hmm. or, you know, other competitive leagues. It's so weird to, to think that those lines are, you know, you're right. The, the DH is really sort of the last, the last line. Yeah. And I wouldn't say, I mean, we're being nostalgic, but I wouldn't say that was better necessarily. I think think there was something, I don't don't know that it was better. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. I wouldn't want to go back to a time when we couldn't watch all the baseball with one click. I think that is superior to any kind of rivalry that existed and doesn't now. But yeah, maybe there's a little bit lost there. Certainly there's something lost with the All-Star game, for instance. Better or worse, but, but different in a way that that I sort of miss, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of, you know, following it, following the American league from a, a national league city was a lot like I, it's a lot like what I imagine of following uh, the Spanish soccer league from England is like, mm-hmm. you know, because nowadays, because you could see it all on TV, you know, you could read about it in the paper and players move from, from league to league, but there, there was, you know, sort of a, uh, historic and and philosophical and and you know dividing line in terms of gameplay too. It's very mm-hmm. so. I I do think we've lost something. I don't. You know, I've, we've probably gained more, but it's yeah. it, you know just interesting to think about. This was this is within living memory for people like us who aren't that old, and mm-hmm. you know it's just, that line is just almost completely erased now. Yeah, that's right. And so one of the things that separated the leagues over the last 15 years was that the AL was always better and would always win in interleague play. And there were lots of reasons advanced to explain why that was so. I think we actually did an episode of this podcast where we With talked Dave about Cameron that. Dave Cameron was on. Yeah, yeah, and Jeff Sullivan, yeah. And I think you know there are a few dominant theories. I mean, there is the fact that the DH maybe gives AL teams a, a little bit of an advantage in games played in their parks. But I think larger than that was the idea that 
really it came down to spending. It came down to competition. A lot of people attributed it to the Yankees basically being Mm -hmm. in the AL and kind of, you know, pulling up all the other boats in the league because the Yankees would outspend everyone and they were always winning. And so if you wanted to compete with the Yankees, you had to spend. And so then other teams would try to keep up with the Yankees and that would just pull the AL teams up in a way that it didn't the NL teams. And there may be some truth to that. I just looked kind of a snapshot at the payrolls in the two leagues. So I just looked 10 years ago and back in 2008, the average AL team outspent the average NL team by about $15 million, which is so oh, $17 million something in inflation adjusted dollars. This year, the average AL team has still outspent the average NL team, but only by $2.5 million. So it's almost even in terms of payroll. And we can talk about whether that's a, a temporary thing or a permanent thing. But I think certainly you don't have the Yankees as this one pole that is pulling everyone up. I mean, you've had the Dodgers being the big spenders in baseball over the past few years. So I think that's a big part of it. And it wasn't just the dollars, but it was how teams compensated for not being able to spend. I mean, go back to the Moneyball movie and the famous scene where Billy Bean is at the table with all the scouts and they're talking about what the problem is. And they're trying to figure out how to replace Jason Giambi, who is taking his services to New York and big free agents would go to New York and the A's couldn't really keep pace. And so one way that they tried to compete was to use sabermetrics to get an edge that way. And if you look at the early adopters of the analytical movement, does seem to be disproportionately clustered in the AL. You have the A's, you have the Rays, you have the Indians, you have the Red Sox, all these teams that were among the leaders in that area. And again, now we've kind of achieved parity in that sense too, where every team is smart and every team has an R&D department. And so I don't know that you could say that there's a big AL-NL gulf there either. What's interesting about the the spending thing and the pendulum tilting back towards the National League this year in particular is that this is a year, first of all, the Dodgers are running their lowest payroll in, I think, five, since the, the current ownership group, group mm-hmm. took over because they're trying to get below the luxury tax. And I wrote about this last week and we don't have to get into it now, but the Dodgers are back below $200 million um, in opening day payroll. Meanwhile, the Yankees and the Red Sox are back on top of the American League in a way they haven't been in years. And it's mm-hmm. just... but. You could see there's elements of that spending argument. You know, you see big, uh, big market teams in the National League that have contended on and off, like the Diamondbacks and the Phillies are back in the, are or were back in the uh, the pennant race this year. Yeah. Um, but what's most interesting to me is that the, I don't know if there's a balance of power, but the the leagues do seem different in mm-hmm. you know because the American League is so top heavy right now. So just looking at the standings. Right now, the 15 American League teams, seven of them are over 500. And yeah. that, you know, that feels like the way it should be. But you look at the way it's split, all seven of those five teams that are over 500 have a winning percentage or at least 16 games over 500. Mm-hmm. Whereas the National League, uh, two thirds of the National League is over 500. You know, and the top, and just to wrap this up, the top four teams in winning percentage in, in Major League Baseball are all in the American League. And it, it sets up this scenario that we've talked about on and off all year, but it's the American League is very, very heavy at the top, but the National League has a gigantic upper middle class that, you know, there are 10, 10, maybe 12 teams in the, in the National League that have been competitive uh, at one point or another, and nobody's really pulled away. And I think it just speaks to the great depth of, uh, 
of good teams in the National League versus a very top heavy American League. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, you know, I haven't gone through and checked every team's record against every team, you know, how the how the Orioles have skewed. I can uh, tell you. The, oh, can you? OK. <laughs> yeah. how do- <laughs> I, I believe that the AL super teams or so-called super teams all do have winning records against the NL. So they've they have held winning up. records against everybody. So well, yeah, yeah, but they've held up their end of the bargain. So maybe you could say that the AL's best teams are better than the NL's best teams, although I think that's somewhat inflated by the fact that the AL teams have gotten to beat up on the very bad AL teams, and so that makes them look better. But the Orioles are 7-13 and 13 in interleague play, which is, I guess, actually better Way than better the than they are against <laughs> under other circumstances, yeah. but it's still bad. So to some extent, it is kind of the dregs of the AL dragging down the league against the NL, which makes sense. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely different structures right now. And you have this very stratified American League and more of an egalitarian NL. And right now, there's really no pennant race left. There's nothing to root for in the AL other than the seeding battle between the A's and the Yankees. Whereas in the NL, you still have some really intriguing races that Mm -hmm. could come down to the last week. So from a spectator perspective, the NL, I think, is a better product for the average fan right now. I don't know if there is some institutional reason why the NL looks like this and the AL looks like this. As we were just discussing, there's basically no difference between the leagues. So there's no reason to think that one would be more likely to be in this teardown, tanking, rebuilding cycle than the other. So it might just be a a temporary cyclical sort of state of affairs. But that's always kind of how it's been with one league relative to the other. One is better for a while, and then the other is better for a while. And this has been the outlier in that 15 years in a row, the AL has been better. There's just no reason to expect that to continue forever, although it sort of seemed like it might. Yeah, it does sort of feel like hitting a cycle that it, at the very top of the American League, you know, teams like the Astros and the Indians are at the peak of of processes that it teams like uh, like the Braves and the Brewers and the Phillies have been going through. Whereas it, there's not really, you know, you look at the, a team that's doing a, a tank, you know, a, a capital T tank right now. It's really only the Padres. I mean, the Marlins, you just sort of have to write off at this point. Um, but the Padres are they're a team that's that's been accumulating young players and they stand to get a lot better next year. Mm-hmm. Whereas it, the Orioles and the Royals and the Tigers and the Blue Jays to a lesser extent are teams that were very good in the past three years and just aged out of it. And mm-hmm. you know, this is their bad the old fashioned way, all four of those teams. Whereas there's not really a, a walkover. You go down the, you know, you go all the way down except for the Padres and the Marlins, you know, the Reds have been very good at, at different points of season. The Mets have been, you mm-hmm. know, you posted something uh, in Slack just a few minutes ago about how the Mets have been one of the best teams in the National League down the stretch. And they were, mm-hmm. you know, they started eleven and one. And so it's just there at one time or another, 13 out of the 15 teams in the in the National League have been very dangerous. And I think it's you know, just over the course of the of the entirety of the season, you know, judging the strength of one league against another. I think I'm sympathetic to the argument that being better at the top, particularly as much better as the American League has been, uh, speaks to being better overall. But just that level of depth, the you know, just the. Uh, at any point, any team can beat any other team, um, mm-hmm. or at some point or another, any team can beat another any other team. It's been taken really to the extreme in the National League this year. Yeah. And I don't know that you can look forward a year or two and say that things are going to be dramatically different. I mean, I do think that 
this cycle that we seem to be in right now where you do have a lot of teams on the downside or big gaps between the good teams and the bad teams. I think that's just a phase and it won't last forever because there just won't be the same incentive to do the teardown and the rebuild when lots of teams are doing it at the same time. It's a bit of copycatism going on with the Astros and the Cubs. And I think eventually baseball will find some sort of equilibrium. But when you look at the AL's terrible teams, Some of them might be terrible for a while. (laughs) Like, I don't think that the Orioles or the Royals or the Tigers are necessarily coming out of this thing very soon. So fast forward a few years from now, I'm not sure that they will be back to contending yet. And you've got the Rangers and the Angels and the Mariners. And, you know, there are a bunch of teams that you could look ahead a few years from now and say, I don't know that things are going to be a whole lot better anytime soon. I mean, the White Sox will be better and the Rays are already good and I think are getting better. So there are examples there, but you can come up with NL examples where the Marlins almost have to be better. The Reds will probably be better. The Padres will be better. So I don't know how you would project the balance of power between the leagues going forward. You know, it's it's just being at the in in one point or another of the cycle because I think the the Blue Jays and the Rangers will be good again um, mm-hmm. in the next few years, but at, at, as of right now, they're sort of they're still going down. You know, I don't expect the Mariners to do what they've done this year again next year. No, uh, for instance, can I? There's a Matt Sussman tweet that I've been <laughs> thinking about. Uh, Almost every day since he he wrote it two weeks ago, he replied to Keith Law writing about something uh, about service time, I think. But he said, I'm surprised teams would be thinking about 2025 when it seems obvious we're going to have a work stoppage in 2022 and the rules will change beyond that. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, maybe this concept deserves its own. Well, not maybe this concept definitely deserves its own segment, but I just can't stop thinking about how the way that we think about team building it's so structured around these very specific rules that themselves haven't lasted uh, yeah uh you know very long themselves so it's i just think that that has to make it and maybe maybe he's overstating the, the probability of drastic rule changes you know like free agency coming after four years instead of six or something mm-hmm. like that but i do think that we're sort of that we're evaluating uh team building under a rubric that we believe to be more concrete than it actually is. Yeah, that's true. And not every CBA dramatically restructures how you build a a winning team. I mean, in the past few CBAs, we have seen some meaningful changes, whether it's spending limits on the international market or in the draft or luxury tax and revenue sharing changes. I mean, those things have affected how people put together teams and I think has something to do with the youth movement we've seen sweep baseball. But It's hard to project exactly what will happen in the next CBA. I mean, it certainly seems as if it will be a more contentious negotiation than the last several have been. And the odds of a work stoppage seem to be higher than they've been in a couple decades. And I hope that that won't actually happen. But there are reasons why, if you're the players, you would think that you might have to go to the brink to get what you want, because there are some real existential threats facing the union at this point. So you're right. I mean, I mean, something dramatic like that could change and 
teams will definitely be keeping that in mind. Every time there's a new CBA, I think they all pour over the text to find some little Mm -hmm. loophole that they can possibly exploit. But we're talking about big things that could potentially destabilize competitive balance or the way that you're supposed to construct a winner, the optimal way to do it. The Astros, Cubs teardown might not make sense anymore. So you're right. It adds to the uncertainty. Who knows? And I think that's going to be an issue in this round of CBA negotiations in a way Mm -hmm. that it hasn't been since when was last year? When was the year they went to the brink of a strike? Was it 99, 2001, somewhere in there? Early 2000s. Yeah. Um, since then, this is, I think this will be the most contentious, uh, uh, CBA negotiations in about 20 years. Um, Mm -hmm. before we, we talked about the differences between the national league and the American league. And, uh, I think it would be, we will be remiss not to, to mention that the national league has been entirely pitcher dominated this year, at Mm -hmm. least at the top versus the American league. You just look at the baseball, you know, baseball references war. like this effect has been so great that it's sort of broken Baseball references war, but uh, the top six players in in B war in the American League are all position players, mm-hmm. and the top four players in the National League are all pitchers. Um, and the and there sorry, and there's no uh, position player in the National League who would have broken into the top six in the American League, and there's no pitcher in the American League who would have broken into the top four in the National League. Yeah, and I you know this is obviously one of those you know it's one of those things that. Uh, that gets skewed by there's nothing systemic. This is just literally three or four different players. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just another way in which uh, the two leagues have played out markedly differently this year in a way that I, I don't know they have in in oh, probably close to ten years. Yeah, it's definitely going to make the award races and debates more interesting. I think and. Well, not for you, for those of us who actually care about such things. (laughs) Hey, I never get an actual vote because I'm in the New York chapter of the BBWAA, which houses almost every baseball writer in the country, unlike the Kalamazoo chapter, which is just you, maybe. But I'm still in Houston. uh, They shut me out anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's one reason. But I do think it will make that conversation more interesting. And in some cases, there will be an AL Central related conversation to have if you have feasted on one of the worst divisions ever that should probably have some bearing on your candidacy and the war metrics do not currently account for the quality of the competition so that is a little wrinkle that we will all have to consider and uh, we can go beyond just sorting the leaderboard and picking the guy at the top I'm considering if I ever do get a vote I wouldn't be able to write about it until about the the race that I'm uh, voting on until right. the, the results are released and I'm thinking about how far in advance I have to tell Zach Cram not to volunteer to to do that <laughs> section of the awards column before you have to do it. And so I'm planning ahead for 2020 or 2021. Thanks for considering my feelings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I live to make you uncomfortable, but <laughs> that discomfort will have to wait another week because we got to go. But thanks for joining me to talk about this highfalutin uh, idea of league difference. Always a treat. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks to Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh for joining me today, and to Bobby Wagner, who pulled a double shift and played both ways. He is our own Shohei Otani. Thanks to David Wright, Jerry Depoto, and Joe Maurer for providing us with stuff to talk about. Thanks to all the listeners who wrote and tweeted and emailed in for the mailbag segment. And most importantly, thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. 
Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to more than 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply.